Thank you so much, guys. If you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to John 17. Gospel of John 17. We have split up the Gospel of John, if you're just joining us, into three kind of chunks. Each year we've been working through it, and this year, by God's grace, we will finish the Gospel of John on Easter Sunday. So we're going to start in chapter 17, we're going to move forward, and the resurrection account in the Gospel of John, uh, by God's grace, should line up with Easter Sunday here at Riverview. I'm so excited to be in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, as you remember, is the eyewitness set of accounts of the Apostle John showing us through these accounts, these historically accurate accounts, that Jesus is the Son of God that he's the long-awaited Messiah that we've been looking for and that we so desperately need. The section we're going to be looking at today in chapter 17 is a part of a larger section of the Gospel of John that really forms the last words of Jesus to his disciples. So from John 13 all the way to the end of 17, these are the final words Jesus gives to his disciples before he's going to the cross and ultimately to to be resurrected. So what's significant about this is this section in these final words ends with Jesus praying for you and for me. This section ends with Jesus praying that we would be his hands and his feet, that we would continue the message and the gospel that he's given us, would take that to the world. And here's what's so incredible about this. While Jesus is focused on praying for us specifically, he doesn't start by praying for us. Jesus starts not by praying for me and for you. He starts by praying that he would glorify God. And here's what's so great about this prayer of Jesus. We're going to take three weeks, the next three weeks, to look at three different parts of the prayer of Jesus. But what I want you to see today is that Jesus starts with the glory of God. And I want you to know that when we grasp why Jesus does that, it changes everything for me and for you. With all that said, why don't you stand up with me, stand to your feet as we look at John chapter 17. We're going to be in verses 1 and we'll just go through verse 8 this morning. John 17, this is the prayer that Jesus prays for his disciples to be his hands and feet in the world. Listen to what Jesus prays. Verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you've given me out of the world. Yours they were, and yours they, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. This is the word of the Lord. This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us. Would you pray with me, church? 
Father God, we pray in these moments that you would speak to us. God, that you would remove distraction, that you would open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say. And Lord, that as you speak, God, would you help us not just be hearers of your word, but Lord, would you help us be doers of your word as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. John 17 verse 1 starts with the theme, the glory of God. Jesus asks, Father, glorify me so that I can glorify you. Now, what's significant about this start is Jesus, in praying for us, doesn't start with us. He starts with the glory of God. And by implication, what that is to mean for you and I is that that's where our lives are to start. Our lives actually don't start with us. They're to start with the foundation that we were made to glorify God. Now, what does that mean? What does the glory of God mean? It means the praise, adoration, and honor of God. The glory of God means praise or honor that we give to God. So when you put it in a verb form, to glorify means to praise or to honor or to adore God. Our lives have been made and are called to be about totally and completely the glory of God. Now here's why this is so hard for us sometimes. The reason I think the glory of God is difficult for us is because we misunderstand who God is. You see, you can basically put every single person in the history of the world into two categories when it comes to God. People either view God as a means or they view him as the end. Means or an end. Either God is a means who exists to give me something that I want Or God is the end who gives me himself, which is all I need. So this afternoon, some of you will go to a restaurant and you will no doubt order a drink. Water, tea, something like that. And when you get a drink, many of you will ask for a straw. And when you put your straw in the cup that you've been given and you begin to drink that, the first thing that probably won't come to your mind is, wow, this is a really great straw. Unless it's one of those deals where it like loops around and you know has all those kind of shapes in it, you're not going to be impressed by the straw per se. You're going to be focusing on what the straw does, what the straw brings. You're going to say, "Wow, it's a good cold cup of water, or it's a good glass of tea, or it's something that is refreshing to you." Because the straw doesn't exist for itself; the straw exists to bring you this kind of liquid refreshment to your body. Here's what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned some of us see God like a straw. I'm concerned that some of us look at God as if he's here to bring us something else that's going to satisfy us. I'm concerned that some of us see God as a straw to bring us happiness or health or prosperity I'm concerned that some of us see God as just a kind of genie in the bottle that exists to give me the longings of my heart, rather than recognizing if we press this analogy, God's not the straw. God's the refreshment that our souls desperately need. Guess who really is the straw? We are, actually. If you you really press that analogy, we're designed to be conduits of God's grace into other people's lives. The point is this. 
you and I have got to stop seeing God as a means to some other end, and we have to start recognizing that God is all that we need. What's so great about grace is not that God gives us some other thing. What's so great about grace is that God gives us himself. So here's the point I want to make to you this morning as we're jumping right into this and what Jesus is saying. When I live for the glory of God, I unlock God's design for my life. This is the point of this whole message in one statement, okay? When I glorify God, when I quit seeing him as a means and recognize he's the end that I'm meant to live for, when I make that shift in my thinking, I tap into what I was made to do. Until I shift my thinking from something else being really what I'm living for to God's glory and what he's about being what I'm living for, I never connect, tap into, and unlock what I was made to do. Imagine it kind of this way. Imagine a coach has got a really athletic football player. Incredible athlete, can do just about anything, just athletic off the charts. And because he's so athletic, his first thought is, wow, we've got to put this guy at quarterback. And so he begins to try him at quarterback, and after two or three months, it just is not working. Though this guy's an incredible athlete, he's really fast, he can jump really high, very strong, he just can't connect and, and make the throws and do the reads and do what needs to happen. And so after a couple months of trying him at quarterback, he says, you know what, with your athletic ability, what if we tried you at free safety and at wide receiver? Let's, let's move you around and try to teach you this position, because as athletic as you are, there's got to be a place for you on the field. And so after a couple weeks of training and a couple weeks of working with this player, he begins to thrive. He begins to explode with effectiveness because for the first time, he's in a position where his gifts and abilities are being used. And the coach steps back from this whole situation. He goes, you know what? I should never have had that guy quarterback. This guy was made to play free safety. This guy was made to play receiver because when he does those things, his effectiveness just goes through the roof. And here's what I want you to see. When we live for the glory of God, we tap into the position we were meant to play. You were not meant to play the main character position in which your life is about you. The position you were designed for, that you were meant to play, is a supporting character role, living for the glory and praise of God. Sweet people, if we don't shift our thinking, we're going to try to play quarterback when we're meant to play free safety. If we don't shift the way we think about God, we're never going to connect to the purpose for which we were made. His glory. So here's a question for you just as we start, okay? Just a question to help us process this. Do you see God as a means or do you see him as the end? Do you see God, back to our analogy, as the straw or do you see him as the nourishment that you need for your soul? Is he a bridge to some other destination, or is God the destination? Let me tell you one of the ways you can think through that practically. Show me what your prayer life looks like, and I'll show you what your view of God really is. 
So if you think your prayer life reflects, um, I pray to God when I'm in a jam or when I've got a problem or when there's difficulties in my life or when I need him to bail me out, I'm probably viewing God as a means rather than an end. If, on the other hand, my prayer life reveals just a gratitude and a thanks for God in which I'm enjoying his presence and I'm enjoying what he's about, and yes, there's a supplication, there's a request part of it, but that's not total what my prayer life is, I might be seeing God as the end, as the destination for my life. But whether we see God as a means or an end will go a long way to determining what our kind of effectiveness is for his kingdom. Here's what I want to do for the rest of our time together this, this morning. I'm going to talk about three things you need to remember if you're going to continue to see God as a means rather than the end. Excuse me, flip that around. Uh, erase that from the video. Uh, three things you need to remember if you're going to see God as the end and not the means. Okay? Three things you need to remember from this text that I think we need to have loaded in our brains. Number one. This passage shows us that God is gracious. We need to remember, if we're going to live for God as the end and not the means, we need to remember that God is gracious. Look back at verse 1 and see how Jesus gets into this. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since or because you have given him authority over all flesh. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Skip down to verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus says that the reason he came, the work that God gave him to do, was as this person who's over all things, this king who has authority over all things. Jesus is the one who's come to give us eternal life. Jesus has come that we'd have a life of vibrancy that lasts forever. So notice the duration of this life. It's eternal. It never ends. But the life that Jesus offers us is not just a duration kind of thing. It's also a quality to it. There's a depth to it. Because what he tells us is this eternal life that he offers us, verse 3, look at what he describes it as. And this is eternal life that you know that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life means that I get a whole eternity that never ends of knowing personally and intimately my creator. The kind of knowledge that Jesus is talking about here is not a theoretical or academic kind of knowledge. It's a very personal, intimate knowledge. It's the difference I would describe between cooking or reading about food and eating it. So I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm a horrible cook. If it were left to me to feed myself, to take care of myself, I would starve and die, okay? It would not turn out well. You do not want to eat anything that I'm going to cook. However, I'm a very good eater. How many of you are good eaters out there? Oh my goodness, we got a bunch of those. Okay, we got some good eaters. Some of us really enjoy the cooking part. You're really good at that, that there's a, there's a pleasure that comes with that, and God bless you people. We need you guys. But the rest of us eat your food, and we really, really enjoy it. Now, here's what Jesus is saying about knowledge of God. Knowledge of God is not just being in the kitchen looking at the food. The kind of knowledge God's talking about, Jesus is talking about here, is actually tasting and experiencing God. 
The Bible calls us to taste and see that the Lord is good. There's a place for experiencing, for example, the comfort that God offers us. There's a place for, for example, experiencing the fact that God's grace repairs us. Somebody asked me recently, what's the most astounding thing that you've learned about God in the past year? And here's my simple answer. It's that God's grace doesn't just save us from our past. It saves us and begins to repair us in our present. God's grace changes us. He repairs us. And it's so exciting to experience and see God working in your life now. Here's the challenge, though. This eternal life that Jesus offers us, there's an obstacle to it. And the obstacle that the eternal life that Jesus offers us faces is our sin. Our rebellion before God is the obstacle Jesus has to overcome to give us eternal life. Because the reality is what I said a moment ago about the means and the ends. The reality is every single one of us enter this life thinking God is the means to our own existence. Every one of us enter this life thinking God's here to make me healthy, wealthy, and wise. And so what has to happen is there's got to be this repair. There's got to be this this changing of our hearts to move God from being a means to an end if we're going to experience his grace and mercy. The fact that, that we see God as a means or we think of ourselves as the main character, it manifests itself in our lives in all kind of ways. We disobey our parents. We, we lie. We steal. We worship false gods. We lust. We have hatred in our heart toward other people. All of those things are symptoms of a sickness of our hearts. And Jesus has to do something about this because if we're going to receive this eternal life, the reality is because we've rebelled against God, because we're opposed to him, we deserve a sentence of death over our heads. Somebody has to take our penalty for us. That's why verse 4 is such good news. What Jesus says in verse 4 is incredible. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus says in John 17 that he's accomplished the work that is needed in order for you and I to experience eternal life. Now, here's what's so compelling about that. Chapter 17 in your Bibles, the cross hasn't happened yet. That hasn't happened to 18, 19, 20, and 21. That's where we head to the cross. What Jesus is saying is the work that he was going to do on the cross at this point is as good as done. It's finished because he knows he's going to obey the Father. He knows he's going to go to the cross because when Jesus goes to the cross, the work that he's going to do is going to finish our problem once and for all because the penalty that you should have gotten, that I should have gotten, Jesus is going to take on himself. One of my favorite movies is Lord of the Rings. Any Lord of the Rings fans out there? Okay, we got a few. Lord of the Rings, the reason I like it is because it does such a great job of portraying good and evil, right? Good and evil are so clear in Lord of the Rings, unlike our world that oftentimes where evil is very hard to pick out. Uh, the third installment of Lord of the Rings is, is a movie and a book based on, the, uh, the, the, the movie was based on called um, The Return of the King. And it's about Aragon, this, this human man who's there, he's the heir apparent to the throne of mankind and and what he has to wade through and fight through are these forces of evil, right? These orcs and goblins and these horribly sinister people that are so obviously evil, you don't even have to look at them for a few seconds to realize they're evil, right? They're grimy, they're black, they growl, they gnarl, they just look horrible. 
And the whole movie, of course, is about the forces of good and these guys with Aragon fighting these forces of evil as they try to destroy this ring that's got this power over this world. What's compelling to me, though, is when we think about Jesus, what Jesus is doing is he's dying for his enemies. In, a, in essence, if you think about it through the lens of Lord of the Rings, it would be like Aragon dying for the orcs and goblins. The truth is, according to the biblical worldview, you and I are not warm, nice, fuzzy people on God's side that he's just kind of lucky to have. We're enemies of God. We're in rebellion against him. And so when Jesus says, I'm going to finish the work that you've given me to do, what he's saying is, I'm going to die for rebellious people who are running away from me. The gospel is not the story of good people trying to get closer to a bad God and that he would like them and that he would be nice to them. The gospel is the story of a good God running after and pursuing bad people. Part of the reason this is getting harder for us to understand in American culture is because we've bought the lie that the answer to all of our problems is within us. Listen to me. The answer is not within you. The problem is within you. The answer doesn't come from looking deeper and deeper within to find a solution. The answer comes when you surrender your life and say, God, if you don't get me out of this mess, I've got nowhere to turn. What I want you to see when we see the gracious nature of God is this statement. I want you to see how committed God is to enabling his purpose in us. I want you to see the lengths God goes to to make it possible for you to do what you were made to do. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is the story of Jacob. Jacob, who later becomes Israel, uh, has to flee because of some situations with his family. He comes into a situation with another family member where he agrees to work a number of years to get a wife. And through a course of events, he ends up working 14 years for his wife, Rachel. Now, I was engaged for like nine months. I don't, I'm, I'm fairly certain nobody in here could rival 14 years. And if I were counseling them, I would not recommend a 14-year-long engagement, okay? Ladies, if somebody offers you that, you run the other direction. But Jacob does this for her. And one of the sweetest parts of the Old Testament, I think, is when the Bible describes Jacob and his love for Rachel, and he says this about, about a period of that time. He says, these seven years went by fast to Jacob because he loved Rachel so much. It was as if it was just a short period of time because he loved her so much. And I, I firmly believe that Rachel, if she ever wondered about Jacob's love for her, could look back and say, man, that guy served 14 years to be my husband. It was something she could come back to, a stake in the ground over and over and over again to remind her of her husband's love for her. Can I tell you some good news this morning? God has done way more than that for you and for me. Because while we rebelled against him, he sent his son to die for you. He sent his son to offer his life for you. 
And the glorious reality is that the depth of God's love is something we'll never fully understand, but what we can get our hands around and our minds around is we can come back over and over and over again to the cross if we ever wonder about God's love for us. Here's why that's so important. We need to remember the commitment God has to us so that we can glorify him. When we're tempted to see God as a means rather than the end, we've got to come back over and over and over again to his love for us. So I think it's fitting at this point just for me to ask you this most important question, and that is this. Has there ever been a moment in your life when you have received the love that God offers you in Jesus? You see, because it's not enough just to know about it or to be aware of it or to know it's there. The only way you and I can receive God's love is if there's a transaction that happens between God and us in which we die to ourselves and we rise again, just like Jesus did. The same thing Jesus went through physically is what's got to happen in us spiritually if we're going to know him. The way we experience the grace of God is by dying to ourselves, turning from our sin, and totally and completely depending on him. It's turning from me being the main character of my life, me being the boss of my life, and instead trusting Jesus as the Lord of my life. It's repenting. It's doing a 180 and totally relying on him and him alone. That's the way that we receive God's grace and forgiveness in our lives. And so what's most important, I think, at this point is to recognize you will never see God as the end of your existence and not a means until you receive his mercy and grace into your life. That's the only way that can happen. So number one, what do we need to remember if we're going to see God as an end and not a means? We've got to remember that God is gracious. Number two, we need to see that God is eternal. We need to see that God is eternal. Look at verse five. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What Jesus is doing here is he's pulling the curtain back a little bit on the fact that God is a trinity, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. Well, well, Spencer, can you do a little bit better job of explaining that? No, I can't. Sorry. That's about as far as our understanding goes. God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's one God, but he's three in his nature. There's a limit to what we can understand about that. Here's what's important for our conversation this morning. What this tells us is that God was completely satisfied with himself before time began. Before God spoke the world into existence, there was a glory, there was a praise among the members of the Trinity, among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that they had, which meant they eternally were happy. They could have never created the world and they would have been fine. What this tells us is that God actually lacks nothing. He doesn't need anything. So here's the million-dollar question. If God lacks nothing, and he's always existed, and he would have been fine having never made the world, if that's who God is, why did God make us? If God doesn't need you, he doesn't need me, why did God make us? And here's the simple answer. God doesn't need you 
but he wants you. God doesn't have to have you, but he's pleased to love you. He's pleased for you and I to praise him. It brings God pleasure to make us and for us to glorify him, but he doesn't have to have that. Yesterday afternoon, we did a funeral for one of our senior saints, Pauline Marbury, um, was 91 years old, and she passed away this past Wednesday, and we had her celebration of life um, yesterday afternoon. And what was so incredible about this woman is that we were gathered together, and it just ended up being a time of praise and thanksgiving for her life. Pauline Marbury, for over 50 years, taught the Bible in this church. She taught it to kids, she taught it to adults, she taught it to everybody in between. When she and her husband were a little older, they decided to take a fourth grade boy into their home named Armin from the Missouri Baptist Children's Home and become foster parents, eventually become his parents. To this day, as a grown man, he calls her mom and she calls him her son. And I learned this yesterday, that in the last year of Pauline's life, probably longer, her sister, Rexine, who lives in Arkansas, is blind and she can't see anything. Pauline would call her sister every single morning and read to her. She would read the Bible to her. She would read books to her. It just blew me away, this woman's life. Because I want to tell you something about Pauline. Pauline was not flashy. She was not out in front. She wasn't somebody that you would just immediately be drawn to. She was faithful. She was an ordinary person who served the Lord for 91 years. What's interesting to me about Pauline's life and those things that I just shared with you is that she didn't have to do any of those things. She didn't have to do one of those things. And if some of you know Pauline, she wasn't going to do anything that she didn't want to do. She was a strong-willed lady. So why did she do those things for Armin and for 50 years of teaching the Bible and, and calling her sister over? If she didn't have to do those things, why did she do them? It's because she wanted to. It pleased her to do those things. Now, here's the point I want you to see. What I do that pleases me, that brings me pleasure, shows you a lot about my heart. Part of what Pauline's 91 years showed us as she, her life was on, on display for us yesterday afternoon is it showed us who she really is. Here's the good news about God. God's love for us, God's, the fact that he doesn't need us, but he wants us, the the fact that he pursues us, shows us his heart. It shows us who he really is. If you're ever wondering, is this a God worth glorifying? Remember that God doesn't need you, but he wants you. And that shows us that his heart is love. He has set his affections on us, though we did not deserve it. So let me ask you this question. Do you believe that God doesn't need you, but that he wants you? Do you believe that the God that we worship is lacking nothing, but is love towards you and towards me? Some of us may have a very unhealthy view of God. We view God maybe as distant and cold and detached. God doesn't need you, but he wants you. He wants you. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you. Some of us may view God as a pushover. He's this cosmic grandpa that's just waiting to do whatever I want. God doesn't need you, 
He didn't have to have you. He'd be fine without us, but he wants us. One of the greatest obstacles to the glory of God in our lives is taking for granted that he didn't need us, but that he wants us. I've said this before, entitlement is one of the great sicknesses and cancers in our culture. People think they're entitled to everything today. And if we're not careful, that can seep into the way we relate to God. We think we're entitled to certain things from God. God didn't have to love us. He decided he wanted to. There was nothing compelling God to love you and me, except that it took, it gave him pleasure to do so. Why should you glorify this God? Why should you live your whole life for him and not be a life well spent? It's because he doesn't need you, but he wants you. Number three. Thirdly and finally, God is truth. God is truth. Look at verse 6 in your Bibles. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Keep reading verse 7. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received these words, and they've come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Jesus is primarily talking about the disciples that he had been working with these past three years. And he said, these guys have come to believe that I have come from you, Father, that you and I are one, that I'm the Messiah. But the way that they've done that is by believing the words, the truth that you gave me. And this is a theme we saw, especially in John 14, 15, and 16, where Jesus promises that after he leaves, the disciples are going to be given the Holy Spirit and they're going to remember and they're going to write the New Testament so you and I can have these words. But here's what's powerful. The words of God are the way that we know the character of God. The words of God are how we actually know intimately and personally who God is. Look back at verse 6. I had manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. That word name means nature or heart. And here's what Jesus is saying to us. If we really want to know and taste and experience God, though it's possible for us to do that, the place we've got to go is his word. This is why from the beginning, the enemy has tried to drive a wedge between the people, the humans on this earth, and the words of God. In Genesis 3, when the serpent first comes to Eve, his first line of attack is, did God really say? Did God really say these things to you? And when he gets that little hook into Eve, it's downhill from there. Because he knows if he can get us to question the words of God, Ultimately, we're questioning God's authority, and ultimately, we're questioning God himself. You see, the word of God, the reason it's so valuable, is it's the bridge that connects us to the heart of God. God's word connects us to God's heart. The reason we can make that claim, and the reason Jesus puts so much emphasis on this, is because the Holy Spirit is the one who works through the word to change us. 
When the Holy Spirit and your Bibles encounter faith, encounter trust from us, transformation happens. So for those of you that are math people that like equations, the Word of God plus the Holy Spirit plus trust equals transformation. When I bring myself not just to read the Bible, but to trust the Bible, this beautiful thing comes together where God begins to change me from the inside out. In a former life, I uh, did a lot with music. Um, I, in fact, at one point in my life, was going to major in music. I was really involved through church life in music. I played the trumpet, I sang, I played guitar, I played piano. One of the great privileges I had when I was in high school was to be in this organization called the Memphis Youth Symphony. It was a junior kind of high school version of the Memphis Symphony. And one of the pieces of music that we play, that orchestras play all over the world, is this uh, series of movements called Pictures at an Exhibition. It is a beautiful piece of music that was originally written for a piano. And it was written by this Russian guy named Modest Mazorsky. He wrote this piano piece. And it's this piano piece of a person walking through an art gallery, seeing beautiful paintings. And each movement is a different painting that the person is looking at. So each movement is meant to describe in kind of different ways what the person's seeing through music. The, the piece was always there, but it didn't really become popularized till this French guy named Maurice Ravel took pictures at an exhibition, the piano piece, and he orchestrated it for an entire symphony. And if you watch major orchestra calendars, every two or three years they'll play this piece because it is so incredibly beautiful because he took these simple melodies that were on a piano and he layers them over violins and violas and cellos and trumpets and all kind of wind instruments to create this incredibly beautiful, rich and thick harmony and sound. When you and I open our Bibles and the Spirit of God is working, and we trust the Word, there is a beautiful harmony that emerges in our lives. And the beautiful harmony that emerges is the song of transformation. Let me tell you what I have observed about people reading the Bible. One of the reasons I think a lot of people struggle to read the Bible consistently is because all they're doing is reading it. The Bible is not just a book that's meant to be read, It's a book that's meant to be lived. The bridge between reading the Bible and living the Bible is trusting the Bible. So here's how that works in your life. If you're reading the Bible and you come across a promise or you come across something fulfilled in God's word or you come across a truth or God shows you a facet of his character, what you and I are meant to do is not just to go, huh, that's interesting, file that away for more facts I can share with somebody else. What we're meant to do as we read that is we're meant to trust it. We're meant to replace trusting ourselves or trusting some part of this world that we've come to rely upon. We're meant to replace that with trusting God's word. And listen to me, sweet people. If you begin to read the Bible in such a way that you trust it, you'll never put this down. Because the Bible is more important for your soul than food is for your body. And one of the ways the enemy is trying to knock some of you out of the game as it relates to advancing the kingdom of God in this world, especially at the lake and around the world, is getting us out of the word. The word of God, not in a legalistic way, not in a checking box kind of way, but in a way that says, I'm trusting what God's word says is how God changes us. 
So how can we be people that glorify God? It's by remembering that God is truth. And when I come to his word, I'm, I'm being exposed to the truth that he has for me. So let me ask you this question. Do you trust this Bible? Do you trust God's word? Parents, are you willing to stake your parenting philosophy? Not on what makes your kids happy. Not on what makes things easy and kind of comfortable as, the, as it goes in life. But are you willing to stake your parenting philosophy on what the Bible says? Families, are you willing to stake your finances and how you do your money? Are you willing to stake your financial well-being on following the word of God? You see, because we can say we trust the word of God all we want to, but if it never shows up in our lives, do we really believe we trust it? How about your marriage? Husbands and wives, do you trust God's word enough to say, we're going to try to live out the biblical model for what a husband and a wife is meant to be in our homes? We're going to trust God with the results. We don't care how crazy it may seem to somebody else. We're going to live out male headship and wives submitting to husbands because that's what the Bible says. Are you and I willing to stake our lives on trusting this book? My prayer for all of us is that when you're at the restaurant today or when you're the next time you're drinking something from a straw, is that you'll consider, do I view God as the straw or do I view him as this nourishment that my soul desperately needs? Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the truths that it calls us to consider. Father, I pray for anyone here today, God, anyone here who does not know you. God, I pray that the lengths you've gone to to save them, the truth that you died for them, that you rose again, God, that you would open the eyes of the blind. I I especially pray this morning for people here who may think they're Christians and they're not. People who think it's just about ritual or form or it's about the family that I come from. Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes to help them see that unless a transaction has happened between you and them, they don't know you. Father, I pray that people in this room today would die to themselves and they would rise again to trust and walk in faith with you. For those of us that are Christians, Lord, I believe some of us are asleep. I believe there are Christians in this room that are distracted, heavy burden, laden with the cares of this world. I pray that your word this morning would comfort them would challenge those that need to be challenged, would exhort and and encourage those that need to be encouraged. But most of all, Lord, I pray that your word would bear fruit in our lives this week. We were not meant to live for our own glory. We were meant to live for yours. Would you help this place be a place that doesn't see you as a means to our own advancement of our own kingdoms? But would you help us be a church that is about your glory and might and power? God, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand and sing, let the word of God continue to work in your life.